HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. I'm Greg Bresnitz. And I'm Darren Bresnitz. We're the host of Snacky Tunes. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, with Chris Arnold today. Chris Arnold is the uh, communications director for Chipotle Mexican Grill. It's the chain we all know and love, the chain that is taking uh, the United States by storm. Chris oversees a variety of external communications, including media relations, government relations, and public affairs, as well as philanthropic programs for the National Burrito Restaurant chain. He is an architect of the company's brand and external messaging and a counselor to the company's executive team. Welcome to the show, Chris. I am so excited that you joined me today. This is going to be fun. Excellent. Uh, glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we talked a long time about about you coming on, I think, when I was still doing the main course with Patrick uh, Martins, um, and somehow I, I kind of lost track of you, And uh, but here you are again, because thanks to Chef's Collaborative, where I'll be moderating that panel on scale next week, and uh, folks, yeah. you should definitely check that out, and your own Nate Appleman will be joining me on that panel, so that should be fun. Um, but I wanted to start off talking about um, lots of news about antibiotics in the past couple of weeks, um, which I know you and I have uh, talked about in the past on the phone. Um, did you see the per- that Purdue breaking ranks? Uh, do you see that that uh, development of them breaking ranks with the rest of the poultry industry, as well as the president weighing in on antibiotic conservation as part of a trend? Or uh, do you think the livestock industry will hang on for as long as they possibly can uh, to pursue business as usual? And would you like to take any bets? I think it might be both. Uh, (laughs) I I, I, I hope it's part of a trend. Uh, I like to think it's part of a trend. Um, uh, But I also think you're probably going to see the industry hang on for as as long as it can. Uh, When the the FDA passed voluntary guidance uh, urging uh, livestock producers to to move away from the use of, of antibiotics, uh, some of the reactions that you saw from from people uh, who've been really opposed to the use of antibiotics in livestock farming uh, was essentially that the industries had decades to voluntarily move away Absolutely. from this practice. 
and it and it hasn't happened. Uh, still, when you see uh, when you see steps in the right direction, whether that's uh, Purdue um, uh, moving away from antibiotics, Chick Fil A has said that they're right. going to move away from uh, the use of antibiotics. Uh, you know, the more steps you see in that direction, I, I think the uh, the more maybe the industry's grip on that loosens at least a little bit. Yes, I think you're right about that. I mean, at this point, it's become uh, you know it's a marketing issue as much as anything else, and looking towards the future of one's company. Were I, uh, you know, in charge of Purdue, Tyson, or any of the other big producers, uh, I'd be thinking to myself, hmm, consumers seem to really feel strongly about this. You know, like, if I want to stay in business, maybe I really better pay attention. And that brings us, of course, to um, to the policies uh, that, that basically inform the purchasing of Chipotle. And uh, you guys have been very strong on, um, you know, sourcing from... Um, producers that do not use hormones, antibiotics, or other uh, chemicals in their livestock. And um, your your CEO, Steve Ells, recently addressed that supply of responsibly raised cattle um, in a Huffington Post blog, and he mentioned that you're supplementing that supply with Australian grass-fed. And having just come back from Australia and having seen that grass-fed cattle, I have to say, it's probably a good idea um, for you... <laughs> But this got you in trouble with the Texas Department of Agriculture. And then um, and then on the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, uh, there was a quote from a pasture raised, uh, you know, a pasture uh, raising beef producer named Daryl Wood uh, in response mm-hmm. to Steve Ells. And it said that his company, Panorama, has previously supplied Chipotle um, and has had conversations with you as recently as a year ago. Um but and that their product met your definition of responsibly uh, raised, but uh, he felt that price that it was a price driven issue for you, and ultimately you went with Australian beef rather than American beef because it was cheaper. And you know, I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I think that's what capitalism is all about. Um, but I wanted to get your uh, your response to that because I thought it was sure. like really interesting that they fought back at you that way. Sure. Um, you know, a couple of things, and, and we'll start with the uh, the decision to to, to uh, purchase grass fed beef from Australia. Um, unfortunately, in the United States, uh, grass fed beef is a very 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 small niche. It probably accounts for somewhere around one to three percent of beef production right. uh, in this country, if that. Um, in Australia, uh, raising cattle on grass is a much more standard practice. Yes, ninety-three percent. Yes, and and so uh, because of that, uh, grass-fed beef uh, from Australia doesn't carry the same price premium as it does uh, in the United States. The grass-fed beef that we're buying. Uh, from Australia carries a price premium that's more in line with the uh, with the naturally raised or responsibly raised beef that we buy uh, that's domestically raised, and, and that beef is uh, raised without antibiotics and, and added hormones. Um, and and so it, 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 there is definitely a cost component to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Cost isn't necessarily the biggest factor, but it is a factor. Part of our business is really predicated on uh, making food using these better, more sustainably raised ingredients, uh, but doing it in a way that makes our food really accessible to mainstream consumers. Mm-hmm. And and that means that you know, we can't pay unlimited amounts for the food we serve. As it is, uh, we already have the highest or among the highest food costs in the restaurant industry, regardless 
of category. We tend to run uh, food costs in the neighborhood of 33 to 34%. So, So for every dollar that we bring in, we're spending about 34 cents of that for the food that we we purchase and and serve. And uh, for our business model to remain intact, I mean, we have to uh, stay in in that that general ballpark. And and so when you're dealing with uh, very small niche producers uh, in the United States, it's difficult uh, for them to sell at prices that that work with our model, and it's very difficult for our model uh, to to work with theirs. Um, there's another important piece of this equation, mm-hmm. um, and and that is uh, we use relatively small percentage of an animal when you're when you're talking about uh, beef cattle, and so uh, right. whatever we buy and whatever premium we pay, uh, the the producer needs to find other buyers as well that are willing to pay a similar premium. Um, in order for them to, to raise more animals or, or for them to sell the animals that they've raised at a, at a fair price. Um, I think the issue with uh, the Texas beef producers and, and other cattlemen in the United States, uh, to Steve's uh, Huffington Post blog that you, you referenced, um, it was really mostly the product of the term responsibly raised. Uh, Steve's blog uh, said that we can't find enough responsibly raised beef domestically, and because of that, we've started to supplement um, uh, with some grass-fed beef from Australia. And, and I think that really upset a lot of cattlemen, mm-hmm. the implication being if it's not <laughs> responsibly raised, it's irresponsible. And I think that, that the, the conclusion they drew was that, that we were calling them irresponsible, when in fact responsibly raised for us is a trademarked term that right. speaks specifically to our beef protocol. And so it wasn't necessarily our aim to say this is responsible and therefore that's irresponsible. Um, it was merely a reference to a, you know, a branded Right. Uh, a you branded have a set term. of standards to which you want yes. to adhere. And the beef in the United States, there simply is not a large enough supply to make it a cost-effective choice for you. Um, so um, I want to go back for one second because you were talking about how your restaurant spends 34 cents on the dollar for your food costs. Just create a context for the listeners with other quick service restaurants such as McDonald's or Taco Bell or what what is their cost food cost on the dollar? Can you, For most are you able of the rest that? of the industry, 30% is high. Um, uh-huh. You know, a lot of the industry looks in that high. It looks to be in that high 20% range. And, and let me give you a, a, a figure that I just came across in the last week mm-hmm. um, that, that will provide a little color on this. Um, in the mid-1970s, uh, the Jack in the Box chain ran an ad promoting two tacos for 99 cents. Right. Uh, in the mid-1970s. Today, at Jack in the Box, those same two tacos cost 99 cents. Mm-hmm. If you adjust How that cost that? only <laughs> for inflation, you're looking at a co- you know, those same tacos today should be $4.50. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're not is the product of, of companies cheapening the food they buy. And, and mm-hmm. if you're going to sell tacos at 99 cents, then you can't have 34% food costs. Right. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, let's move on because I want to go back to the responsibly braised beef. So when, when we talk about um, creating a supply that would be domestic, um, what, what kind of scaling up would you need to see so that your price point and your quality were aligned? Like what would be 
you know, how much do you guys need to make that work for mm-hmm. you? And how, how do you think uh, that could be encouraged? Sure. Um, last year, in total, we used more than 120 million pounds mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of meat, uh, chicken, beef, pork, uh, from animals raised without ha- antibiotics and, and added hormones. Um, so we need you know, kind of a lot of, of everything. Yeah. Uh, with beef, the shortfall that we're seeing this year between what we need and what we're able to get domestically is in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 percent. Mm-hmm. So um, it, we would certainly need to see that sort of scaling uh, just to, to, uh, to, to remain essentially at a break-even uh, point. Part of the challenge that we've seen is that we're using 30 percent more beef now than we were two years ago, really? and, and so our need for for beef and for everything that we're using uh, is continuing to grow. And, and with beef, it's been particularly challenging in that the beef supply is at the same time at a sixty-year low. That's right. Um, and and so that's the you know kind of the the uh, uh, the environment in in which we're playing. Um, beef presents other challenges uh, in that the grow-out cycle of beef cattle is much, much longer than it is for, for other meat-producing other animals. Right. Chickens are raised for 45 to 60 days. So if, if we need more chicken or, or other large buyers need more chicken, it's relatively easy to impact on the supply quickly. Pigs are raised for about six months. So again, relatively easy to impact upon the supply in a fairly short period of time. Beef cattle are raised for 20 to 30 months. And and so it's a much, much slower uh, supply to impact upon. And, and when you're in an environment where feed costs are high and, and it costs a lot more for producers to raise cattle, there's not nearly as much incentive for them to do that unless they're getting uh, uh, really, really high prices to offset the, the added costs that they're incurring. Right. So it's but been a very tricky environment for beef the last couple of years. Last couple of years, but right now corn prices and soy prices are, are uh, historically low. Once again, they're in the $3 a bushel category, um, certainly for corn, um, and I think uh, soy a little bit higher. Um, but what I wanted to, uh, to dissect with you for just a second here is when you're talking about uh, cattle production overall being at a 60-year low, yes, Yes, that is true, but that is conventional cattle production. And I'm curious if uh, sort of the niche cattle production, uh, which I see as a, a somewhat separate business, has not grown at the same time due to consumer demand. And, and you're, that's, that has no impact on your supply? You haven't it, seen that scaling up in that particular niche market? We, we've seen some growth, but not not as, Nowhere near as, as much as we're growing. Right, um, right. And and we, you know, we saw this as an issue very early on mm-hmm. in our uh, in our quest for for antibiotic free or more sustainably raised uh, meat. When when we began this, uh, you know, a dozen, thirteen years ago, something like that, fourteen years ago. Now, um, we, we, it, it started when we when we started purchasing pork from from the farms of Nyman Ranch, right. and uh, at the time we had about fifty restaurants and. Uh, Nyman had about 50 or 60 hog farmers in their program. Mm-hmm. Um, what we saw as we grew is there was essentially a one-to-one correlation between the number of restaurants we operated and the number of Nyman Ranch hog farms needed to supply us with pork. So today we have more than 1,700 restaurants, and Nyman has 
the six or seven hundred farms That's in right. our program. So they've grown exponentially since we started working with them, but that's still not enough, and we've had to, to find other suppliers. So um, even with that sort of growth with a niche producer like Nyman Ranch, it still really doesn't begin to compare uh, or it doesn't begin to keep pace uh, with, with our rate of growth. I mean, we have been in a position uh, for the last several years where we need 20 or 30 percent more of everything mm-hmm. uh, than we did the previous year. And, and that can be a challenge. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just thinking about how happy you must have made Paul Willis. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, Personal uh, hero. I love the guy. I'm so happy. I mean, uh, you know, Paul is a, a great uh, person and a, and a longtime partner and yeah. ally uh, of ours. But, uh, you know, it was a lot of work to, to uh, build up the Nyman hog operation oh, from no 50 or 60 farms uh, to where it is today. And, yeah. and frankly, one of my uh, favorite trips of the year when I'm able to make it is to the uh, Nyman Ranch Hog Farmers Dinner in, in Des Moines. And, I know. Uh, I just uh, missed that. Having dinner with all the farmers and their families is always a real treat. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of Nyman Ranch, I wanted to um, just kind of address the fact that Nyman Ranch, um, I guess they had a little bit of a head start on, say, cattle producers. But why is mm-hmm. I mean, OK, the it takes less time to raise hogs. But even so, like, I think it's tr- kind of peculiar that the cattle sector and possibly the poultry sector as well, I, I'm less familiar with them, um, have not seen sort of the writing on the wall, that there weren't enough mm-hmm. progressive farmers um, who were seeing uh, the growth of chains like Chipotle and even other, uh, you know, high-end burger chains that were making those demands and started uh, raising beef to protocols that were different from conventionally raised beef. To me, it, it speaks to uh, something sort of going wrong with, say, the trade associations or with the, ed- I don't know, whatever the education is that that the farmers get about where market trends are going. And, and I just wondered what your comment was on that. Um, well, well yeah, you know, change definitely comes slowly in in these industries, but but we've we've certainly seen interest growing. Um, I spoke at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association conference a few years ago mm-hmm. uh, on a panel with Mel Coleman, and and right. uh, Coleman uh, Natural Beef is is a longtime yep. uh, supplier of ours, and Mel and his family were really you know, pioneers in in raising cattle with without the use of antibiotics and and added hormones and. and and when they started, you know, they were essentially laughed out of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Indeed. And on this particular panel, uh, which was all about raising uh, cattle in in this way and the market that exists for uh, cattle that was raised that's that's raised to the standard, um, it was in a room with a seating capacity of about 400, and it was standing room only. Wow! And, and so to be in that environment just a few years ago, when you know a decade earlier um, you're essentially run out of the organization for for uh, 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 adhering to those practices, I think really represents sense a lot of uh, a lot of change and certainly a lot of interest among uh, beef producers in, in what's happening I think it's it, you know, the, the the resistance to change I think is the product of a lot of things I think you have uh, people who have uh, uh, come up uh, raising cattle their families uh, uh, raise cattle in in certain ways um, it's worked for them um, uh, I don't think 
they necessarily you know like being told that what they're doing isn't um, you know isn't as good as something else might be. You know, we try to walk the line um, uh, between promoting what we're doing, but not necessarily criticizing uh, what what others are doing. Oh, wait a minute, now, Chris. We're going to get to that after the involved. break. <laughs> Come on. The scarecrow farmed and dangerous? Wait a minute. (laughs) We are going to talk about that, but I I want to keep going going with what you're talking about now. Um, and, and also, of course, there are costs associated with, yes. with making those changes. That's true. Uh, one of my favorite cattlemen in the country who, who uh, we, we don't work with at the moment, but I think he's uh, a remarkable uh, uh, a remarkable person, and I think uh, his story is really compelling, is Ed Harris in Georgia. Who, oh, yeah. He's uh, fabulous. Will Harris. A, Will Harris. White Oak mul- Pastures. Yeah, yep. And, yeah. and he, you know, he's a multi-generational cattle producer who was raising cattle in conventional ways, mm-hmm. just like his father was doing before him. And when it came time uh, for Ed to think about the legacy he wanted to leave to his kids and the next generation uh, of, of cattle producers in his family, he said, this isn't it. And yeah. he started over again and, and is raising uh, organic cattle. Yeah. And and uh, uh, so there is a movement afoot. Um, uh, you know, it, it's not necessarily happening quickly, but but change on a really large scale uh, never does. No, it doesn't. And uh, you know, I agree with you. It's and it's very it is very hard for uh, for people to uh, sort of buck what their neighbors are doing and buck what their families have done for possibly generations. But I think you know what surprises me about it is a sort of deaf ear to the market. And um, I you know I really wonder where that comes from because I feel like in other livestock sectors uh, they've been a bit more nimble and i feel like i you know i read those trade blogs obsessively i think they're a riot um and they're also very uh compelling in the sense that they teach you a lot about the people who are in the industry on the grassroots level and uh there is just an unbelievable amount of pushback and ridicule and um you know, uh, real genuine hostility and and fear and suspicion of people like you. Um, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, too. Um, but just like those changes come with not just, I mean, it's not just that, oh, they do or they don't see that the market is changing. It's that they feel personally threatened. And that, I think, is, is a very um, serious problem within especially the cattle industry. But um, I see that it's 1220. We have to take a short break. Um, we're going to do a little sponsor drop. And then we'll be right back with Chris Arnold from Chipotle, Mexico. Mexican Grill, one of our favorite, favorite fast food restaurants. In fact, my very favorite. And uh, we'll continue this very interesting conversation, Chris. Thanks so much. And uh, we'll be right back. And she smiled at the sun and the pale olive trees. She wiped the dirt from her hands as she stood up to leave. And the Opened up and she was taken from me. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. 
feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking about uh, cattle, primarily, with Chris Arnold, the Communications Director for Chipotle Mexican Grill. Um, And we were um, just having a little chat about um, sort of a recent, uh, you spoke in front of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association recently. We're talking about why the cattle industry in particular has been slow to change. Um, And then you you said something about how you don't really like to point the figure that that their conventional raised uh, cattle is not as good as uh, sort of um, as it could be, shall we say. And yet you guys produced those absolutely fantastic videos, the Scarecrow and the four-part series Farmed and Dangerous. And um, that very much definitely points the finger at uh, conventional uh, industry. And um, I'm wondering what their response was to that because, boy, I'll tell you, the trades went absolutely freaking crazy. I mean, you would not believe. Of course you did. You saw it. I'm sure you did. So what kind of dialogue did you have with them afterwards? Um, uh, well, I mean, we, we, we spoke with a number of organizations uh, and, and individuals who contacted us, uh, you know, outraged over, over what, we were, what we were saying or what we were portraying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there are some things um, that are important to understand, and I don't know that, that, that the industry always sees them this way. Um, you know, the, the fundamentally, the Scarecrow, which was uh, the animated short film, right. um, wasn't really about industrial, uh, about raising animals in industrial ways. It was about the the degree to which food is processed, and so mm-hmm. it's it, you know there were some scenes in it that 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 made reference to industrial the industrial production of chicken and and beef but fundamentally uh the scarecrow was a film about what happens to chickens or 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 you know, cattle after uh you know after the their their uh harvested for for meat and you know the the you know taking chicken and making a slurry out of it and stamping mm-hmm. it into to little chicken-shaped nuggets and and things right. like that. So it was it was much more about about the extent to which food is processed rather than than eaten as uh, whole foods the way that, the way it uh, uh, originated. And and farmed and dangerous was much more about the uh, the business of spin and the length that industries go to make people think things that aren't so good are or or at least not. Bad and uh, in fact, at the time that Farmed and Dangerous was being released, uh, you saw some of this playing out in the lawsuit between the uh, corn growers and the sugar growers over the uh, efforts to brand uh, high fructose corn syrup as corn sugar, and and each side had their uh, experts, uh, scientists, and nutritionists, and whatnot, uh, who were spokespeople for the media and talking about why this is uh, just, you know, why high fructose corn 
syrup is just the same as sugar and, and all of these things. And and so this was playing out in court uh, at the time that Farmed and Dangerous uh, was coming out and the lengths that both sides go to, to really shape perception. And that's really uh, what, what Farmed and Dangerous was about. In fact, the only farmer in, in Farmed and Dangerous was the hero. He was a good guy. And, right. and so you know, we've really always maintained that we have a lot of respect for farmers, whether they uh, you know, whether they are, are, are raising animals or, or growing vegetables that, that meet our standards or not. We, we fully understand that people who farm for a living uh, make many, many, many difficult decisions every day, and they make those decisions based on what they think is best for their family and their farm, and, and, uh, and we respect that. But fundamentally, we do the same thing. We make decisions about the ingredients sure. that uh, we serve that we think are, are best for our customers and, and our business, and, and sometimes uh, those things are at odds with, with what the industry thinks. Um, you know, we, we did have some dialogue with the industry. You know, the, I think the, really the most visible thing in the wake of uh, uh, Farmed and Dangerous and the Scarecrow actually came on the heels of uh, the, the blog post about, about uh, grass-fed beef, and it came from uh, Todd Staples, who's the Texas Agricultural Commissioner, right, uh, right. Who, was, who was really outraged by that and, mm-hmm. and reached out to us, and we responded very, very quickly. So our, our aim in, in producing these communications is to spark dialogue. I mean, yep. most people uh, don't know that there are choices about uh, uh, you know the food they eat and and where it comes from and and how it gets to them. I don't think most people know that you know some seventy or eighty percent of antibiotics used in this country are used in livestock production. And in order to talk about uh, the alternatives and the solutions, and we believe that Chipotle is one of those solutions, uh, you can't really do that without talking about the problems as well. Yeah. And, and that's where we've sometimes, uh, I think, gotten uh, you know, um, uh, crosswise with the industries is, uh, you know, anytime you raise uh, raise the issues. I think some of the in- industry uh, feels very threatened and very under attack by that. Uh, when in fact, uh, you know, we're merely trying to say uh, there are animals raised for food using antibiotics, and there are animals raised for food without the use of antibiotics. And you, as a customer, get to choose which one you want to eat. Right. And uh, but as you have pointed out in the course of this conversation, the um, the uh, level of production of that model, of the latter model without antibiotics, et cetera, uh, is, is still only a, a small percentage of overall cattle production. And, um, you know, as we said at the outset, that doesn't seem to be changing. And, and one of the things, I mean, I thought those videos were great in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I, um, I could see how they would infuriate the industry. Uh, I thought that they were, in a large measure, sort of public service announcements because they did make that message plain that you do have a choice as a consumer, that there are different methods. But, um, but you know, you would think from uh, sort of the, the industry blogosphere, and this goes back to the trade associations, which I've decided um, completely uh, sort of arbitrarily are, are possibly the root of all evil with this, uh, with this industry and that they are uh, deliberately holding um, – 
you know, producers back from making better choices because they are deliberately disseminating information that I believe to be erroneous, such as that, you know, the use of, of antibiotics in livestock production is really not the problem that it should be. In fact, um, next week I'll be interviewing Gail Hansen from uh, Pew Charitable Trusts on Purdue's announcement about withdrawing antibiotics. And, uh, you know, uh, there was a quote that I read from the American Meat Institute or the, or the Animal Health Institute, uh, Richard Carnivale, who said something like, well, the NARMS report is really kind of, I think we're, we're you know, devoting too many resources to this research and, and it really doesn't show anything conclusive. Meanwhile, actually, it, ha- it does and many other studies do. So, I mean, at the risk of, of taking over completely here, I just wanted to say, you know, you guys, you realize that you have this, um, you know, you have this, this very powerful uh, trade organization which spins absolutely everything you do to their members as something very bad and very threatening to them. And I wondered if you could respond to how that is, how, whether you think that's having an impact on how, on the, on the slow rate of change within the, uh, you know, cattle production industry. I, I think it might be, and, and I think to some extent it, it, there's also a chicken and egg component there mm-hmm. where, you know, the, the industries. Um, you know, one of the things that we hear from the industries often on the heels of these programs is, is you know, look, why can't we work together on this stuff? We we represent your segment of the market as well. We represent all cattle producers, and mm-hmm. and and while that's while that's true, you know, I think they represent the industry uh, very proportionately, and and you know, when ninety five percent of uh, of you know cattle producers or pork producers or chicken producers are raising animals in these more conventional ways that's where their representation goes and and um, you know I don't understand why why you know that that why when there's you know five percent or ten percent that that doesn't follow those protocols why they perpetuate things that are are damaging to to those other uh, protocols I mean that's exactly what they're saying we're doing and and they're getting really really upset about um, where where there is I think some disagreement between our approach and theirs is is while they have this uh, obligation to, in theory, represent all facets of the industry, which includes what our suppliers are doing. Right. We have no such obligation. We can represent uh, whatever facets of the industry we, we choose to, and we choose to represent uh, the, the small uh, percentage of suppliers who are are doing things that are consistent with with uh, our protocols and and what we think is is a better way to to raise food um, and and you know I think there is you know that absolutely uh, the the zealousness with which the industry uh, which the associations represent these large industrial practices uh, probably is a factor in in slowing change um, but that 's where I think there's this chicken and egg thing i mean that 's also where you know ninety five or ninety eight percent of their members are yeah, but they provide a feedback loop that I think uh, misrepresents the market and misrepresents uh, the growing future of production. Um, and I think that, you know, most Americans at this point, um, you know, above a certain income level are more than willing to pay a little extra. Um, and I think that a lot of this could be moving faster were it not for uh, for the um, 
adversarial position that these trade associations take and which they then disseminate to their members. Um, but I wanted to go on because in, a, in our recent phone conversation, we were talking about the commodity panel, I mean, the scale panel. Um, you mentioned something about the idea of restaurant owners developing standards across the board for what they would look for in livestock. And I thought mm-hmm. that was a really interesting idea. And I just wanted to explore that a little bit with you and ask you, first of all, what would, if you had got your witch, what would those standards be? Well, well, I, I think the, the the point there is that that the uh, th- that having common standards um, is important to driving change, and yeah. and uh, you, you know we have uh, our standards sort of in simplest terms for for meat production are uh, no antibiotics, no added hormones, and and animals that are raised in humane ways, and that differs from pigs to chickens to, to beef cattle because the way the animals are, are raised is much different than, of course, the way hogs are raised in in more uh, industrial uh, settings is arguably the most egregious of, of all of them. So Indeed. kind of what that means in, in those uh, to, to each species differs a, a little bit. But, but fundamentally, those are the things that, that we look for. Um, yeah, there are different antibiotic programs. Uh, we, you know, we've been adhering to a, no, a never ever uh, program. So uh, animals that are treated with antibiotics for illness, which we think is absolutely the right thing to do. However, then they're removed from our program because we have this never ever program. There are other uh, antibiotic free meat producers and meat buyers who who allow uh, and sick animals treated with antibiotics uh, you know, up to a certain time number of times to remain in the program mm-hmm. in the European Union organically grown or organically produced meat uh, the, the animals can be treated uh, up to three times uh, for illness with antibiotics under veterinary supervision and remain organic here that's that's not the case so the the the, the thought being you know if you have Sort of more common standards for what these protocols mean and what they entail, I think it becomes easier for people to, you know, first of all, understand them from a consumer perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but also then for, for buyers, whether they're large uh, restaurant companies like Chipotle or small individual chef-owned uh, restaurants, to, to, to support these programs and to know what it is uh, they're getting. E- even on some of these, the, the chicken announcements that we've, we've talked about uh, before, I mean, you have uh, hairs that are being split there about, uh, you know, antibiotics injected to eggs and, yes. you know, versus just not feeding chickens antibiotics. And, uh, and so that makes a program like that uh, different than, than our program, which is no antibiotics ever. And uh, uh, so all of these things, I think, just muddy the waters, where if you, whereas if you had standard definitions and standard uh, protocols, it would be, uh, it'd be easier for consumers to understand and, and, and uh, uh, sellers to, to, to uh, make the switch. Much easier for producers to, uh, yeah. Absolutely. I, I absolutely, would... yes. So, would you? So, are you saying that everyone. Chipotle might be willing to relax some of its standards if they could come up with standards that would be uh, applicable to a, a wider range? Say, the Darden Restaurant Group or one of the other big, you know, one of the other big sort of mm, fast casual. I think they call that sector. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like if they had if they adopted some of your standards, would you then roll back some of 
the things that you find important in order to meet them halfway so that you could collectively uh, you gain more leverage in driving change? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, that's a, that's a tough uh, question to answer. It's not really um, fair, but um, <laughs> I'm going to ask you, it anyway. You know, I, I think... <laughs> I think we would we would have to think long and hard about doing that. Right. Um, uh, you know, we have since we've started on this path, uh, we have really not looked to roll back our standards, but to push them farther and farther. Mm-hmm. And and so, um, you know, we certainly applaud the decisions of uh, of people, you know, companies of all kinds for making steps uh, in the right direction, even if they're not. Steps that go as far as we do. You know, we're happy to see uh, Chick Fil A moving to antibiotic-free uh, chicken, though their program isn't as as rigid as ours. But it's still a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. We're happy to see uh, McDonald's. Uh, uh, you know, talking about the, the move away from uh, uh, pork. Uh, from pigs raised using gestation crates. We're right. intrigued uh, by uh, McDonald's sustainable beef program and where that could go um, with some of these uh, uh, decisions or announcements. Uh, we're still waiting to see the, the actual action and, and left right. the, the, the conversation uh, about them. But, but any step in that direction is a positive step, whether it's as far as, as, as we go or not. Right, right. Well, Chris, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, uh, I got to stick to my time limit today. <laughs> But I'm hoping that you'll come back another time. We can talk more about um, things that are changing in the industry. I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on and giving me uh, 40 minutes of your time today. Um, and if there's anything you want people to look at uh, or know about, uh, maybe you guys have some philanthropic organizations that you're sponsoring. Um, if you sure. want to spend the last minute and a half talking about that, by all means, do so. Well, I, I would I would uh, mention a couple of things. First, if if people are more uh, are interested in learning more about our ingredients and our ingredient standards, there's uh, a lot of uh, information on that on our website at, at chipotle dot com. Um, and then the other thing I would mention is is that to help help us um, you know, sort of drive this kind of change uh, in the food system. Uh, just in the last couple of years, we've created a charitable foundation uh, called the Chipotle Cultivate Foundation which is uh, set up to support uh, people and, and organizations that are working to, to create a, a better uh, food system, people who are supporting family farming and sustainable agriculture and, and you know, a more, uh, a more uh, equitable food future for, for all. And, and uh, there's a little more uh, on that organization at cultivatefoundation.org. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, we've been uh, fortunate to work with some really uh, really interesting partners uh, through that. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. This has been really very informative for me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you had a good time. Um, I did. Thanks uh, for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. Yeah, I I, I thought we'd have a lot to talk about. Um, uh, So I want to thank my sponsor, Tabard Inn, and of course, my engineer. This has been another episode of What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. Tune in next week for Gail Hansen talking about Purdue chickens and what that means for the industry. Um, Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.